Hello, everybody. Welcome to the session. We're going to make a start. Sorry, we are slightly late, um, but welcome. Uh, we're here to talk about a radical alliance for Europe. I'll say a bit more about that in a minute. Um, but first of all, um, I'm sure if you've been to other sessions at TWT, um, it doesn't need repeating, but I've got to say we're all here from different backgrounds. Uh, we have different histories and different experiences, and we are aiming for some uh, good comradely debate today. Um, we welcome all views and opinions and perspectives, um, as long as nobody says anything um, which is discriminatory or bigoted. If someone does say something like that, please feel free to get my attention um, and, uh, and, and let me know um, why you think it is so. Um, but let's try to avoid any fights uh, on the floor. I'm sure we will. Um, first of all, I'm going to um, pass over the microphone um, to Angelina Giannopoulou from the Transform Network, and she's just going to say a little bit about who Transform is and why they're here. Hello, welcome. Thank you for being here attending this session. We co-organized this session with Another Europe is Possible. I guess that you are pretty much familiar with this organization. And I think that you're not so much familiar with Transform Europe uh, network. So we are a network of uh, political foundations and left and progressive think tanks. Uh, 32 organizations from 22 countries in Europe are involving in us. And when I say European countries, I'm not only referring to countries of the European Union, but in general, we have foundation and organizations from Germany to Serbia and from Turkey to Finland. We are engaged and we have always been engaged to critical political analysis of the European integration project. And we are active also in the field of political education. Uh, we decided that uh, having um, partners and comrades uh, also in Britain and in the UK, especially this period, uh, with all this uh, renaissance of uh, the Labour uh, party movement is essential, not only for us, but also for you. We respect a lot um, uh, alliances and we do believe that uh, a change in each of our countries, but also a change in Europe, uh, can only be made by alliances and partnerships. So I now give the floor to Nick, who is chairing this uh, debate. Thanks. So my name is Nick Dearden. I run a social justice organization called Global Justice Now, and we were one of the founding members of Another Europe is Possible. And Another Europe is Possible campaigned in the EU referendum for a Remain vote, but we campaigned for a Remain vote whilst remaining extremely critical of the European Union. Um, we do not um, believe in the neoliberal uh, principles or basis that currently um, run Europe and the European Union as it is, we would like Europe to be run on a completely different set of principles, um, socialist and internationalist principles at the heart um, of what we're doing. Obviously, from where we are at the moment, that seems like a distance, it seems like a long way. And so we've put this panel together to begin thinking out what kind of Europe do we want? And not only what kind of Europe do we want, but how might we get there? Uh, and I'm really pleased um, that I am joined by such distinguished guests for this conversation. Um, we have Dimitris Sanakopoulos, um, who is a Greek Syriza uh, minister. Um, we have 
Uh, Diane Abbott, who is on her way and will be here for five minutes, and you know who Diane is. I don't really need to introduce her. We have Kate Shea-Baird, who is a member of the executive of Barcelona's En Comú, um, which has been an extremely progressive, uh, radical political formation that helped um, to transform Barcelona. Uh, we have Luke Cooper uh, on the end, who's the chair of Another Europe is Possible. And we have Niccolò Milanese, um, who is a philosopher, a poet, an activist, um, born in Britain, um, but obviously with an Italian background, um, and who is uh, the director of European Alternatives. Um, so I'm hoping for a really fruitful debate. Um, the overseas guests will speak for 10 minutes. Uh, the British uh, speakers will speak for five minutes because we really want to make sure that you have the opportunity to contribute to the debate, to ask questions. And as I say, there is no such thing as a stupid question in this debate. Um, we welcome all contributions. So I'm going to kick off with Kate, who's going to tell us a bit more about the, her experience in Barcelona of radical municipalism um, and what the future of Europe can learn from what's happening in Spain at the moment. Thank you. Um, I'd just like to acknowledge the lack of diversity on the panel. Um, it's um, something I think that in debates on Europe is often a problem, um, and I think it's something that we really need to work on. Um, having said that, it is a very great pleasure to be here. Um, as you can tell, I'm not Catalan. I'm originally from London. I've been living in Barcelona for 10 years, and I've had uh, the privilege since 2014 of participating in what I think is one of the most exciting and transformative movements in Europe, which is the Spanish municipalist movement, uh, specifically Barcelona in Comun, which is a citizen platform that has been governing the city since 2015. So Barcelona in Comun is not a political party as we would understand it traditionally. It's a local platform that brings together local branches of previously existing left and green political parties, new political parties like Podemos, people from um, activists from social movements, and also people with no previous movement or party uh, background. And in 2015, platforms like this uh, won all of the major cities in Spain. So Madrid, uh, Barcelona, Zaragoza, Coruña, Cádiz, all of these cities are being governed by uh, these kind of radical coalitions. Um, I guess the question is where does this fit into Europe and the crisis of Europe? I didn't realize I was gonna be the first one to speak, so I thought that somebody else already would have done the work of assessing the whole like, situation in Europe, but I think we'd probably all uh, agree anyway. So like we have neoliberal globalization, um, the upsurge of the far right, and they're feeding off each other in this kind of death spiral. That's my like, two-sentence summary of it anyway. Um, and I think there's often a false dichotomy in the debates about that, about what to do about it. Um, either we have to defend uh, globalization and undemocratic transnational institutions, or we have to retreat to the nation state and somehow beat the right at its own xenophobic game. Um, our view from Barcelona is that um, that's kind of uh, using the wrong unit of um, action. And uh, we found a formula that works for us in our city and that we think that 
one could be applicable to other towns and cities, and two, um, if it's connected as a network of um, municipal movements, then it could act as a counterpower to both uh, the 1% and the far right at European level. So municipalism is uh, a whole, uh, I could spend a lot of time talking about what it is, but basically it's the idea that we need to organize locally, street by street, in our neighborhoods, uh, from the bottom up. Um, I'd like to be honest here, in the Barcelona and Coum, when it was set up, um, <clears throat> it wasn't, well, we were not like ideologically convinced municipalists. Uh, we talked about standing at other levels of government, and the initial choice was a tactical one rather than an ideological one. But actually, based on our experience over the past few years, and also based on our observations of experiments, other political experiments in Spain and elsewhere, we've actually become convinced municipalist through experience. Why? Well, firstly, because at local level, we can win elections. Um, with the greatest respect to radical candidacies like Podemos in Spain, France in Sumis, uh, Jeremy Corbyn himself, none of them have actually managed to like cross that threshold and win an election. And in Spain, as I said, we've won all of the major cities. There's other cities in Europe like uh, Naples or Grenoble where there are similar uh, governments in power and also small towns like Ceylon in France or Froome in the UK. And I think one of the reasons why we're able to win locally is that we can build coalitions of people who disagree on issues at other levels. So in Barcelona, we have the issue of Catalan independence. In Barcelona in Comun, we have people who are in favor of independence, against independence, ambivalent, fed up of the whole issue. And we all work together because we all agree on what we have to do about housing, public space, air pollution. And I think the parallels in the UK are quite clear with issues like uh, Scottish independence or Brexit, that we can actually like, not let those issues impede us coming together at local level. Uh, the second reason we are convinced municipalists is actually kind of a counterbalance to the first one, which is that one of municipalism's strengths is that it acknowledges the limits of institutional politics. So winning elections is necessary, but it's not actually enough to make all of the changes we want to make. And the institutions don't always have as much power as you think that they might do. We've seen uh, our friends in Syriza have won elections and then had great difficulties in actually um, you know, doing everything that they want to do. You'll correct me if I'm wrong, but um, that's the sense I get. Um, and, and we know that if Corbyn is elected one day, then he's gonna have the whole economic and political establishment working against him. So what we do as municipalists is that we stand candidates for election, but that we also like try and build um, institutions, um, processes, movements on the outside at local level that can support and complement what's happening on the inside. So for example, um, our city government is doing a lot of work on housing, building public housing, uh, finding banks who have empty properties in our city for speculative purposes, uh, stopping evictions, but when it comes to the point where a judge issues an eviction order, which is something that still happens inevitably despite all of our efforts, we can call on uh, the social movements in the city 
uh, and say, tomorrow at nine o'clock in this street, there's going to be eviction, go and stop it. And we have a really strong housing movement that will go and take direct action and stop the eviction happening. Um, so another thing is the idea of taking back control, but actually really taking back control. And rather than just promising that if we have better politicians who implement better policies, then everything will be great. Uh, the promise of municipalism is that if we have direct democracy, participatory processes, popular assemblies, the actual act of participating in those processes is transformative because it breaks us out of our individual isolation and uh, the sense of blame that a lot of us have for our problems. It allows us to see that our problems are actually structural and shared with other people. Um, it allows us to empathize with one another. It allows us to um, start to identify the common good. And that actually those uh, participatory processes themselves are, are transformative and are, are, allow us to change the culture and the economy um, and politics and, and start to actually change our cities. And here I would really emphasize the importance of small victories um, that show that there is an alternative. Um, maybe like achieving the community management of a public space might not seem like it's you know, going to overthrow cap capitalism. It's not. But it is something that can start to show people through actual material changes in their streets around them that, that things can be done another way. And that's crucial to get more and more people involved. Um, and finally, um, the municipal level, and I think this relates to the whole far-right issue, it allows us to create a new place of collective identity and belonging that isn't ethnic or national. So if we agree that the nation-state is essentially capitalist, colonialist, patriarchal, um, it's not really surprising that the left doesn't feel comfortable trying to compete on those terms. Um, but we do need some sort of locus of uh, belonging uh, because that's a human desire, right, for, for connection and for feeling part of something. And if we do that at a local level, then we can actually create identities that are rooted in um, people's residency rather than their ethnic or national uh, status and their actual participation in, in the community, um, which can be uh, a new way of, um, of breaking down those barriers. I'm gonna leave it there because I'm not sure if I'm going over time. Um, thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Kate. Uh, no, you were within your time, but that's great. Um, I'm going to hand over to Demetrius now, who uh, is part of a government which has really been on the front line of trying to fight against uh, the neoliberal European structures um, and, and find out where you think that leaves the possibility of an alternative Europe. Um, <clears throat> I want to thank you all for the kind invitation. Another Europe is possible and uh, Transform Europe for organizing this session and, of course, the world transform for the series of events that uh, has organized uh, over a uh, few days. Uh, so uh, I want to try, I wanna try uh, and start um, with uh, the comment about Syriza. Uh, uh, despite the fact that I do not want to 
uh, enter into a, um, a conversation about what happened in July 2015. We can do this conversation, but this is not uh, today's session uh, su uh, subject, I think. Um, I do not exactly agree that the problem, uh, the, the, the reason why Syriza was led to, uh, into a compromise in July 2015 was the, um, the fact that we were not anti-institutional enough. Um, uh, of course, I totally recognize the fact that uh, institutional pol uh, politics are not enough for changing the world. Uh, you need other things, you need movements, you need uh, the, the working class movement, you need to, uh, as we used to say in the past, you, you need to change the uh, whole uh, hierarchy inside uh, society and inside economy, inside the enterprises, which is uh, also a very, um, a very, very important fact, which municipalism, I don't think that uh, uh, can recognize, because it is not inside the economical field. So uh, I think that the problem and the reason why Syriza uh, was led to, to compromise in July 2015 had to do with the overall balance of power in Europe. And uh, this is exactly uh, our subject today. Uh, because let me begin with the tried observation that over the last 10 years, we have witnessed a historic change in terms of how fluid the political scene has become in Europe. No longer do we see what was essentially the prevalent picture ever, ever since the end of World War II, uh, and for many decades. The people uh, where social democrats and Christian democrats or conservatives would alternate in, uh, the, in power with increasingly marginal political differences uh, setting them apart has collapsed. Uh, the 2007-2008 uh, financial crisis acted as a catalyst in terms of creating the circumstances that led to a new prevalently transitional situation. Uh, as any transitional situation, this is a critical situation. Transition entails conflict. And its outcome will determine the new political equilibrium, the political equilibrium of post-crisis Europe. So it is our duty to, de to determine exactly and to decide who we are in this conflict, what are the areas of struggle, and what do we need to do to win? But firstly, we need to understand how the political elite is reading this transitional period. The political elite, the ancient regime, as it were, argues that there are two players vying for power. The realists, the responsible politicians, the technocrats, the bureaucrats, themselves, in other words, uh, the good old political elite, the good old uh, political establishment. And on the other side, the populists. Who is such a populist? Anyone that questions the status quo, never you mind their potentially chaotic differences. Uh, leftists, left-leaning social democrats, nationalists, the far right, 
from Trump to Podemos, the discourse of the political elite, the only thing that sees is populists. So we are all put in the melting pot of populism, and this creates the dominant discourse of the political elite nowadays in Europe. So our first job must be not only to question this discourse, but to demolish it, to lay it to waste. Because this type of argument that they make, that anyone who questions their authority, their right by virtue or heritage and wealth to run the show, is one and the same, has but one goal, to distort reality, to lead to misrecognitions of the concrete situation and to close the people's minds to any alternative and to any other political program. So the first thing we need to do is to demolish this kind of discourse and to try and read the reality in our own way. So what is the reality untainted by such blunt thinking? Three political powers in you know, we have to schematize a little bit, but I think that this uh, description is uh, quite accurate. We have three political powers right now in Europe. The first is the political elite, conservatives, or um, in many cases, social democrats who have actually um, uh, become less and less differentiated by neoliber uh, from ne neoliberal politics, and they don't and they don't understand the need to change anything. Um, they think that everything is fine, everything is going well. Why would uh, they think differently in any case? Because they are fine, they were fine, and they are still fine. But political discontent and social discontent is there. And it creates a field of people and of social classes which are not yet represented. Or they are represented transitionally. You don't have a stable representation of this political and social discontent of um, the, uh, how, uh, how to say, um, uh, of the uh, dominated social classes. So political discontent and social discontent is there. Austerity, joblessness, low wages, low wages, inequality, destruction of the welfare state, all of those elements are there all over Europe. So here's the dilemma. Here's the dilemma. Which of the other two powers will represent the people and their discontent? And which are the other two powers? We have the left and we have the far right. Those two political powers are actually trying to represent this social discontent that is always there. And this is the major dilemma for post-Krausus Europe. Who is going to be able to win this uh, political battle in order to express the interests of the uh, dominated social classes? So, who will give the expression and in what political direction? Because this 
social situation creates an open future. We don't know what will happen if this social discontent is, um, uh, leads to a political wing of the far right. Uh, I, don't wanna, I don't really like to think about it, but it's going to be a major dystopia if something like that happens. So, far right or a radical alliance of the left, a rad radicalized social democrats, the Greens, and all democratic social powers in Europe. Uh, so we need a tent a, 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 such a social alliance, a political alliance, um, still incoherent, uh, is already taking shape across the south of Europe with the exception of Italy. And it is uh, trying to fight for political hegemony in Greece, in Spain, and in Portugal. And this is the exact reason that this alliance has been shaped in all those countries, that the social discontent has not been expressed by the powers of far right. I don't say that we don't have problems with the far right in Greece, in Spain, or in Portugal. This is not the case. Of course we have problems. But the fact that the, the battle for political hegemony um, and for the political expression of the dominated classes is still open in the south of Europe, and uh, for that matter, uh, this holds also for Great uh, Britain, and it was the radicalization and the uh, left turn of, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, and, <clears throat> and the uh, left turn of uh, the Labour Party that actually uh, um, uh, expressed this discontent that helped the situation here and actually uh, uh, led uh, to the uh, minimalization, in a way, of, of, of the far-right uh, advance. Uh, so what I'm trying to say is, um, and I think that we will have the chance to, to talk about all those uh, issues uh, afterwards, is that we need such a radical alliance, uh, not only on the level of nation states, but we need this radical alliance on uh, the level of uh, the European Union if we want to be able to even give the political battle for the representation of this social discontent. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Dimitris. Um, Diane is uh, two minutes away, um, so she will be here very shortly. Um, but why not pass over now to, uh, to Niccolo, if you're okay with that? Sure. Thanks very much, and thanks everyone for coming to, to take part in this discussion. I think it's, it's, it's an important one. Uh, look, Nick made, made a reference to my heritage. I will speak up. I, I see you in that. In the crowd, Nick made reference to my heritage. My grandfather came to this country in the 1950s from Sicily uh, after the war. He came to become a coal miner in Wales. Um, he worked for years in the coal mines, and he would explain that as saying that he came to power the reconstruction of this country, and indeed to power the reconstruction of Europe uh, after the Second World War. After finishing his, his job as a coal miner, he worked in the National Rail uh, for, for years, connecting people 
connecting people across this country and connecting them also to people across Europe. And when I speak with my grandfather about what it is I spend my time doing, um, I try to explain to him that I think we need to do this same mission. Um, we need to connect people across Europe and we need to find a power source uh, that will enable those people across Europe to construct a better continent together. And so a radical alliance for Europe is in a way exactly what I think is required. And I wish that the energy coming out of the, created by and coming out of the Corbyn movements in the UK were powering part of that constructive effort right across Europe to a much greater extent than it's already doing. With that introduction, I think I have three basic points I want to make to you. The first is about the political situation. I think we should see it clearly, and we've already had some good elements there. I think we need to be clear that the far right in Europe is not interested, for the most part, in tearing down the European Union. They're interested in taking over the European Union and turning it into a union of nations. And that is something we should regard as a very problematic and frightening prospect because, after all, as we're discovering, the European Union is a very powerful set of institutions, some of the most powerful institutions in the world, and if they're taken over by the xenophobic far right, uh, then that is not a very pretty picture uh, for anybody in Europe. So we need to understand that that's our enemy, if you like, but at the same time, over the past 10 years in Europe, before that, but accelerating over the past 10 years, there has been the emergence of civic movements right across Europe responding to the situation, whether one thinks of the refugee welcome movements or all the work that's been done on the commons, the municipalist movement. Um, there are emerging movements of civic activism right across the continent, and those should be providing the energy to those, those people working in, in the institutions through a kind of constructive tension. So that, I think, is the political situation. The second point I want to make is about Brexit, actually, and how it plays into this uh, situation. I think that we need to be really clear, it's, it's often forgotten here, that um, the vote in the UK Parliament in October or late November is clearly a crucial one in deciding what the withdrawal um, agreement will, will look like, whether it will be accepted. But it's not the only vote in a parliament. There will be a vote in the European Parliament uh, next year before it can go through. And we need to think strategically about how to influence that vote. There has to be a vote in the European Council as well. We need to think strategically about how to work with partners to influence that vote. And even if uh, Brexit happens, on whatever terms it happens, all of the negotiations about the future relationship between the UK and the European Union will still have to be decided, and there will be future votes. And so it's really important for the future of this country to have strong links with parties and movements right across Europe to influence that process. And I think that to put it bluntly, the Labour Party has the strongest possible interest right now in showing solidarity and reaching out 
to its partners right across Europe to build uh, strength and solidarity for that process, which is going to be a difficult and potentially painful process, not only for people in this country, but with big and important implications for the future of the whole of the European Union. The third point that I want to make, um, and I've deliberately tried to keep this brief, is that our politics has to be ambitious. And in any ambitious area of politics I can think of, whether it is tackling the financial, uh, financialized globalization, or coming up with a migration and refugee policy that works, or trying to tackle climate change, uh, or trying to reform uh, capitalism, we will have to work with uh, partners throughout Europe, and it would be crazy to abandon um, using, as I said, some of the most powerful institutions in the world to try to contribute towards that change. Whether Britain is actually a member of them or not, um, formally, does not stop an attempt to influence uh, those in institutions. And so again, there's the strongest possible argument for um, the Labour Party in particular to reinforce its links with other parties across the continent and put those right at the heart of its strategy of transformation, not only for the United Kingdom, uh, but for Europe and ultimately the world. I think I leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much, Nicola. Uh, welcome to the stage, uh, Diane. Um, just so you know, we've had Kate from Encomu in Barcelona. Uh, we've had Demetrius from the Syriza government. Um, we've had Nicolo from European Alternatives. Um, and we're talking about the type of Europe we'd like to see, the obstacles to that, and how we get there. Um, so is it okay if I pass to you now? Uh, please welcome Diane Abbott, Shadow Home Secretary. Thank you very much for inviting me to this very important meeting. I have a number of meetings to go to this afternoon, but I chose to come to this because I think the subject is so important. My family are migrants from Jamaica, and therefore I am a natural internationalist. I have relatives not just in the Caribbean, but in America and in Europe and parts of South America. If you come, from a place where people have traditionally migrated to find work, you have a natural international outlook. And it's Jeremy's internationalism, Jeremy Corbyn's internationalism, that distinguishes his left project. In the run-up to the referendum on Europe, the Labour Party's slogan was remain and reform. We saw the importance of staying within the EU, but we were not disputing the need for reform. And wherever we end up, and whatever happens with Brexit and its outcome, we will still want to have a very close relationship with the EU. And Jeremy's been reaching out to a number of other European socialist parties on this basis. And our relationship with the EU will probably be closer than any other economy or country for decades to come. 
for reasons of shared history, economic ties and geography. The Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn wants to transform Britain, but we also want to play our part in helping transform the EU and the world in the interests of the many, not the few. And as I said earlier, I don't think anyone doubts that the EU is in need of reform. Sadly, as you've heard, the far right is on the rise in Britain and elsewhere, enabled by mainstream parties, the media and others. You have Golden Dawn in Greece, the racist riots in Chemnitz, the rise of the Democratic Football Lads Alliance here in Britain, which threatens black people and Jewish people and Asians and LGBT communities. And we also see a reflection of all this happening in Europe across the Atlantic with the rise of Donald Trump and his reluctance to condemn uh, Nazi and uh, uh, white activist organizations. But you cannot defeat these things simply by being glad it's not so bad here in the UK. We have to defeat them politically, we have to confront them politically, and we have to confront them internationally. All across Europe, many left forces and some of our sister parties thought you could triangulate, adapt to the racist and fascists and adopt their messaging, have a little bit of anti-immigrant policy and hope for the best. People um, adopted a little bit of austerity. Well, the verdict on that sort of politics is in. In the 2017 general election, under Jeremy Corbyn, Labour Party in the UK got more votes than the German SPD, the French Socialist Party, and the Dutch Labour Party combined. Bending to the demand for austerity to appease bankers and big business does not work. Bending to the far right with anti-immigrant policies does not work. Because after all, it's not immigrants that drive down wages. It is predatory employers. It's a weakening of trade union rights and freedoms and its austerity policies. Do you remember, a couple of summers ago, French armed police forcing a woman in a burkini off a French beach? This happened under a socialist president, and it was shameful. But there are hopeful signs. Portugal has stopped implementing austerity. Um, in Spain, they are trying to make progress. Even in the United States, we're seeing progressive candidates emerging for Congress and for the Senate. Un Lab the Labour Party is under new management. We have anti-austerity policies, anti-war policies, and anti-racist policies. We're for investment, for peace and international cooperation, and we will promote equality. Each country must find its own way to policies that actually work. But Labour under Jeremy Corbyn wants to cooperate with everyone internationally who will help our aims and priorities. We remain an internationalist party, not nationalist. The Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn is for the many, not the few, on a worldwide basis. Thank you. Thanks, Diane. Uh, finally, we've got Luke Cooper, the chair of Another Europe is Possible, uh, Luke, I don't know if you can draw some of these threads together and segue into uh, a wider conversation. 
Yeah, I, I wanted to pick up and respond to what a few friends on the panel have said and then as a way of encouraging discussion and from the floor. So I think one big theme initially was to this idea that Kate mentioned of can we confront neoliberalism through a retreat to the nation state, which also linked to Demetrius's comments about the Greek crisis. Uh, when in 2015 the Greek crisis emerged primarily out of the political balance of forces within Europe. And that poses a question around how we confront financial globalization on a world stage. We can't understand the events that Greece experienced in those summer months without having a wider analysis of the way in which capitalism is working in the 21st century and the ability of big multinational capital to uh, impose austerity straitjackets on entire peoples. I think financial globalization had three big effects since the 1970s. Firstly, it's led to spiraling inequality all over the world. Uh, secondly, it's massively increased financial volatility through the ease of big capital to take uh, money uh, out of countries and hold them to bankrupt and introduce great volatility in how they're uh, working. And thirdly, and perhaps most crucially for us, because we want to a democratic insurgency on the international scale, it undermined democracy by saying to peoples and democratic states all over the world, there are only X, Y, Z policies that you're allowed to implement, or we will make put you at the mercy of international um, financial markets. And I think in, in what Diane was saying about the importance of a politics for the many and how we go about achieving that, confronting financial globalization requires building a politics of the many internationally and requires necessarily working together across borders in the deepest possible international um, cooperation that we, can, that we can find. And whatever happens with Brexit, as, you were, as, as, as others were saying, we're not going to be able to achieve our strategic goals in Britain without having allies and supporters in civil society all across Europe and including working together to deliver actively other left governments and building active partners. Uh, many colleagues across the panel have alluded to the strengthening of the far right and I think we are, as Sweden shows, you know, in a really increasingly dangerous um, situation. I think to fight the far right, you have to understand the far right and what they want and want to achieve. I would argue, with a few exceptions, Sweden is actually one of them, um, but most of the far right in Europe today aren't advocating exit from the European Union. I think they're more intelligent and indeed more dangerous than that because what their program is, is to radically reconstitute the European Union as a Europe of reactionary nation states. It is, if you like, the Salvini model that is increasingly hegemonic, and we can see the murderous consequences of that um, in, in, in the Mediterranean Sea. And in that context, I think we need to build 
two major two political alliances and they're not i think exactly the same we'll have allies in some and we we don't we, where we won't have allies in the other one but one alliance is to say we need to be intransigent in the defense of democracy the defense of minorities the defense of the rule of law in europe which is being undermined in poland which is being undermined um, in Hungary, and this is completely unacceptable, and we'll work with all democratic forces to defeat those far-right and authoritarian governments. And the second alliance that we need, and again, they're not always the same, but on this, okay, the, amongst uh, friends here, I think it is the same um, alliance, is that we need one to ourselves a positive vision for the radical transformation of Europe, an anti-austerity alliance, but an anti-austerity alliance that goes beyond opposition and formulates together internationally a programme for the transformation of Europe. And I think this session is an opportunity for us to ask the question, well, what is our big vision for Europe and indeed the wider world? What are the reforms um, that we need. Yes, we want to renationalize our railways in this country, but how do we then link that to other European countries? Can we have a transnational, internationalist vision for how our railways and other infrastructure is run? And I think that has to be the opportunity and the, the positive element of what we're trying to do, a radical program that is genuinely internationalist. Thanks, Luke. Well, we've had a lot of very interesting, diverse contributions. Uh, now it's over to you. Um, before uh, I hand over to you, though, just two quick um, announcements. Um, the conversation on immigration um, is going to continue at a fringe meeting we're organising next, which is down at the Hilton uh, Hotel, um, where we are going to be joined by Owen Jones, Ash Sarka, Maya Goodfellow. Um, so come there after this, half past six at the Hilton Hotel um, down on the front. Um, and after that, there is going to be an internationalist evening uh, this evening with bands, with films, with DJs, um, and with interesting speakers from across the world. And that's going to be at Constellations from 7.30. So I hope to see some of you um, at both of those events. Um, who would like to ask a question, to make a contribution? Um, hands up, and I'm going to uh, do the normal trying to alternate it um, between men and women. Um, and I see one right back. Uh, there by the wall, and we've got a roving, has anyone got the roving mics? Ah, yes, thank you. Yeah. Hi, my name's Lucia, um, I'm actually a constituent of Diane's from Hackney, um, and I've got a question um, for Luke, I think. Um, so, it sounds like um, the agenda of the far right in Europe is to uh, kind of take over the European Union rather than undermine it. Um, and I'm just curious because that doesn't seem to, the, to be the agenda of the far right in Britain. It seems to be the opposite. So I just wondered what you thought the difference is there. Lovely, thanks. We'll come back, Luke, after a few uh, questions, um, if that's all right. Give the audience a proper time. Uh, there's a guy down here at the front. Oh, yes, thank you. Uh, I wonder if any of the speakers have thought that EU should really stand for Eurasian Union, that if there's going to be a stable future for the planet, there has to be a linking between... Europe, Russia, China, and maybe India, and so on, in order to solve the environmental problems and also to replace the dollar, uh, the petrodollar, as being uh, as the basis of the world economy. So Europe should be looking 
to the east to, to join up. I was wondering what, um, what their uh, opinions of that might be. Thank you. A few rows back, we've got Sally. <laughs> In the middle, yeah. <laughs> and then I'll come to you. Um, I just wanted to, I think when we talk about the rise of the far right, um, we focus on racism, of course, but it always combines racism and misogyny. Um, and I, I think that uh, we, we should all, one thing I haven't heard about yet from the panel, but I think it has been uh, particularly in, in Komu, which was an important part, is this isn't, this isn't only internationalist politics, but it's feminist politics. And I'd like to hear uh, some comments from the panel, I think particularly from, from Kate, uh, on I think that has to be part of this um, alternative, is that it has to be a fe an explicitly feminist politics as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. And at the end of the row, um, yeah, guy at the end. Just right there. <laughs> yeah, um, uh, I think Luke point said, you know, we're looking for a radical model in Europe, and you know, we've got a representative of the Syriza government here today. Um, and I don't think it's really satisfactory to say that we can't really discuss what happened in 2015 when we're discussing how to actually organise a fight against austerity, which people throughout Europe are desperate to overcome in every country you see here with the mass carbon movement. And uh, you know, we have a, a government in, in Syriza which has not, been, not opposed austerity, but championed austerity to the extent where even they've cut everything, even including the fire service, which has led to deaths recently in Greece uh, over, over 100 people. And I think it's, um, we have to appraise what's gone on in terms of, you know, what, what is the situation we confront when left parties committed to opposing austerity come to power and then impose austerity. And it's been, you know, such a, um, a devastating blow we wouldn't be here today discussing the necessity to fight austerity if Syriza would have uh, um, carried out what it said it was going to carry out. Instead, it betrayed uh, a mass movement in Greece. Over 60% of people voted to uh, destroy austerity in July 2015. Syriza disregarded that and is now widely hated by the population for doing that. And I think so. we're not discussing things in the abstract. We have to be truthful about what we confront. And I would warn very much so that Corbyn would do the same thing. Labour governments are already carrying out austerity. L Labour councils throughout this country. One of the councils last night said Liverpool Council will have uh, had £600 million in cuts by 2020. That's been imposed by a Labour council. You know, there has to be uh, an end to uh, a situation where organisations can claim to oppose austerity, yet actually impose it. You know, this is, this is the reality of the situation. So I would, uh, I would ask our Syriza uh, speaker here to justify that. On what basis can such outright lies be told to the population and you come here claiming to speak uh, about a radical alliance when you're not a radical alliance, you're, you're, you support capitalism. Okay. Uh, I see uh, one guy at the back there, but I just, is there a woman who wants to speak because I'm trying to alternate it? Yes, please. And then I'll come to you. My name is Helen. Um, thanks to all the speakers, really interesting contributions, but um, I particularly have a question for Kate regarding um, municipalism. Um, I was quite excited by this sort of transformative potential of it and, you know, um, the way that it, it can counteract sort of far-right 
counteract far-right influence. Um, my question is, how do you go from municipalism to forming alliances, either nationally or internationally? Another smaller question, just interested in Barcelona. To what extent is popular involvement, if you like, the usual suspects? And to what extent does it actually um, involve, you know, kind of like ordinary people in Barcelona? Thank you very much. And then uh, I'll, I'll bring the speakers in again for a minute, but uh, Jeremy, with the, the guy with the yellow shirt, um, is anyone at the back with that? Ah, yes, thanks. Oh, it is on. Um, yeah, I've got uh, two points to make. One was about the um, municipalisation and municipalism uh, to Kate, really. Um, very interested to find out what you're doing in Barcelona. I'm interested to learn lessons from there. But to put it forward as a strategy that can defeat capitalism and bring about something better, socialism, I think it, it is problematic. At the end of the day, you know, municipalization or re localism can be used by the far right. It's used by Generation Identity, a white supremacist organization that is promoting this idea across Europe for um, localism to actually drive out um, black and brown people from their local districts. And we saw in Mexico with the Zapatistas a very radical form of localism, but it did not manage to challenge the state or to end capitalism in Mexico. And I think it is very limited there. It's something that we can learn from in order to run better councils and engage people in politics, but I don't think as a strategy it can actually take us forward. The second point, building on what the comrade said just now, is you know the question about who can unite Europe. There is only one force that can unite Europe in a progressive way. It's the working class, 350 million of us across Europe. And I think the strategic mistake that the Syriza government made was that when you came into office with a mandate to end austerity and to take on the bankers and to tell them to back off, you went to the governments and the finance ministers across Europe. Varoufakis did a tour. If you'd gone to the working class, the German TUC had actually passed a motion to take solidarity action, to tell their own bankers of their own nationality to back off and in solidarity with the Greek working class who are suffering because of them. And I think that's what we need to put into this debate, is how can we unite Europe by uniting the working class organisations of Europe? We're the only progressive force in Europe, and that's the radical alliance that we need. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm going to come back again, but I'll just let me get some responses from the speakers so they've got time to properly address stuff. Uh, Kate, am I okay starting with you? I have quite a few questions to you. Um, well, I'll start with the last one. Um, I'm always very willing to accept the criticism that municipalism uh, can't overthrow capitalism, but show me who is overthrowing capitalism right now. So, <laughs> like, yeah, fair enough. But, um, like, we're winning elections, we're reversing cuts, we're reversing privatizations, and we're actually, like, building something. We're building a movement. So, you know, I'll take what I can get, quite frankly. Um, Right-wing municipalism would be, like, saying, I don't know, sexist feminism. It's a contradiction in terms. Like, to me, it's not localism. 
And localism, I guess, could be right-wing, but um, municipalism includes a whole set of values about the democratic management of the commons and feminism and a whole set of things that mean that it's not... I mean, it's essentially um, progressive. Um, on the question of alliances, we um, think it's really important to build municipalist um, alliances that um, are based very much on, um, on, on collaboration based on concrete common goals. So we don't want to set up some kind of bureaucratic structure. I think the old European party structure is completely outdated. We need flexible models of, co of cooperation that can be adapted um, according to, and like bring in everyone from, I don't know, um, uh, anarchists to social democrats, depending on the issue. So one of the things we're working on at the moment is the fight against Airbnb, which has been um, devastating housing in our city and uh, throwing out people of their homes and their neighborhoods. Uh, through rampant speculation. So we've been working with other cities like Paris and Amsterdam to develop a common strategy against them. And last year in Barcelona, we organized the first Fearless Cities event, which brought together over 700 people from over 100 municipalist platforms around the world. And it's a movement that is growing day by day in the US. There's a lot of people looking at this strategy as well. And... Um, and as I say, I think the way to do it is very much through knowledge sharing, uh, coordinated campaigns on specific issues, and, um, and, and not being sectarian about it. And it would be really great, actually, we have elections next year, it would be really great to have momentum support for us. <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll see whether, whether that can happen. But I think um, the, what was the other thing? Ah, feminization. Um, so I think the, the, the municipalist way of doing things is really useful for the feminist uh, struggle because the whole gender uh, patriarchal uh, system has been based on a gender separation between the public space and the private space and this idea that the public space is where politics happens and the private space is not political. And because it's at local levels where those, the public and the private are closest to one another and most um, kind of um, in, in contact and that, that border is, is most uh, permeable, uh, that's where we can actually start to break it down and start to politicize our daily lives, politicize care work, uh, politicize sexist violence, and actually start to um, bring together um, feminism into all of the other issues that we're um, dealing with. Thanks, Kate. And I know that from our work at, at Global Justice Now, Barcelona's been really important because we're fighting for something called a, a UN treaty on, on um, transnational corporations, which, which Jeremy Corbyn supports. Uh, very few Western governments do. But Barcelona has said actually, we'd like to set up a research centre in Barcelona to make that a reality, to actually provide... So there are ways that 
at a, at a local level, at a municipal level, you can also begin to transform the international picture. And I think what Valencia and Barcelona have done with the migrants' welcome movement as a counterpoint to the fascists in the Italian government is also incredibly important um, in terms of building internationalism from, from the local. Um, uh, Demetrius, <laughs> challenging questions for you. Uh, I'm sure you're used to them, so uh, please tell us what you think. Absolutely. Uh, the criticism is uh, quite welcome. Um, but uh, I don't think that the situation is as simple as it's being described here, uh, which is um, in a way logical. Uh, you don't know the exact situation that Greece was facing back in 2015. So uh, let's say some things about that. Uh, I don't know if you know that Greece back in 2015 was insolvent. Uh, I don't know if you even know what it is to be insolvent. You cannot be able, uh, you are not able to actually um, uh, borrow from the markets in order, to, uh, in order to pay for your debt. Do you know what happens if you don't pay uh, for a bond that is maturing? For example, uh, today, if I have a bond which is matured and I don't pay it, What's happened, what will happen is that uh, this could cause a credit event which uh, will cause a cross default, that is all bonds of the state uh, will uh, become uh, actually uh, immediately uh, will be demanded by your borrowers, by your creditors, and at the same time you will have acceleration Acceleration is that um, every one of your borrowers, uh, of your creditors, will, will demand to be paid immediately. So this will lead to a total, uh, actually, deterioration of the banking system. This will lead the public uh, sector not to be able to pay wages and taxes, and you will be faced with a total economic catastrophe. This is exactly what happened in July 2015 in Greece. So, excuse me, I didn't interrupt you. So, this was exactly what happened in July 2015 in Greece. We were faced with a dilemma. Either we take, uh, either we take an agreement which, of course, was a very problematic agreement. It didn't end austerity. No, no one of us actually accepted that this agreement ends austerity. And uh, no one of us actually accepted that the program that we had to implement was our program. This program was imposed to us because this is exactly the way that the financial markets create economic and political discipline. This is the technology of power that was actually used in order for the Greek government to be led into this situation in July 2015. And for that matter, uh, I totally accept uh, that it is very important to create movements of European solidarity, of working class solidarity all over the world, but I didn't see, I didn't see any such movement during July 2015. I didn't see any 
working class movement all around Europe to actually try and back up the Greek government in those very difficult negotiations that we have to lead. So if we're trying to uh, understand the situation in Greece, this is something that would be a very good lesson for the European left and the world left. If we only want to actually easily criticize certain, um, certain uh, decisions without knowing the exact situation and with mixing up uh, every single detail that we happen to, uh, to read or listen uh, without actually concretely analyzing the concrete situation, this is a totally different matter. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dimitris. Nicolo, I don't think you've got a specific question, but I'll give you, a, if you would like to comment on any of that. I'm, I'm lucky not to have a specific <laughs> question, so thank you, everyone. Um, uh, to start on the, on, on the point of feminization of politics, which I think is really important, and I think I want just to pay testament to, the enormous energy and determination of, for example, women uh, leading the fight to keep their reproductive rights in Poland um, over, the, over the past years in face of... Um, attacks coming from the, from the far right. And of course, we know what's happened in places like Ireland around those issues. There's a huge um, energy coming from um, feminist politics right at the moment that we should, we should keep in mind. Um, but um, I want to link it to some extent with the question about the Eurasian Union. I think that we need to, uh, with Poland uppermost in my mind, be aware that there is a war uh, on the eastern borders of Europe going on in Ukraine, and part of that war is military, but part of it is also, importantly, cultural. Um, and that cultural war spills over into Eastern Europe, and not only into Eastern Europe for that matter. Um, and if you like, the other side in that war is macho, uh, orthodox, authoritarian, and opposed to women's liberation. Um, and we need to be um, aware of that. And also, I suggest, uh, we need to engage um, in a European strategy of multilateral uh, advocacy and defense of our values and not be afraid to say that these are European values of equality between men and women and free speech and all of these kinds of things. Uh, that war is going on on the eastern uh, side of Europe and it's also going on on the other side of the Mediterranean and in the Middle East. And so, in all of these ways, we should make the link between geopolitics and the emancipation of women and, and of all people. Um, I think that um, the other point I would, I would make is that European politics is, you know, it's, it, it, European politics is uh, a complex politics, it can be an extremely frustrating politics for anyone who's been involved in it. It involves making compromises um, and it doesn't, it doesn't always help to go in with simplistic certitudes uh, about the ways things should be done or the way things might work. What's really important is to find methods that bring people together and bring in particular the working classes together. I agree with that. Um, and, and so I don't, think it's so I don't think it's so useful to spend our time uh, condemning um, one side or another in the past and this sort of endless into next time 
leftist um, search for traitors. I think that what's important is to find, is to analyze the situation clearly that we're presented with now uh, and find methods of bringing people together and finding the force to change it. I think that's what this event is about. That's why we're all here. Yeah, I'll respond to the first two questions. So I don't know where the question on the far right came, came from. I just heard it through the microphone, so sorry if I'm not looking at the person. But it's a really important question. I think it, there was always going to be a very strong vote for Brexit in the UK. Um, and there, in that, we have to analyse the nature of that force. And I would describe it as a deep-seated nationalist conservatism. Um, and that's the kind of politics that Nigel Farage comes from, this sovereignteist, conservative, nationalist politics, Farage and Mogg and so on. But we're now in a historical moment where the boundaries between that and fascism have blurred massively. You see this very clearly in the takeover and penetration of the Republican Party in the United States by classical white supremacists. There's been candidates that have moved in the current uh, elections, candidates that have moved directly from far-right groupings in the US into the Republican ticket. So the distinctions that the left has often found as very important between fascism and extreme Toryism are blurring considerably in the current moment. And that raises a lot of strategic challenges for us. I mean, it's really, it used to be really easy for us to say, you know, we know platform fascists, and then we can explain that by saying, well, look, the fascists want to destroy democracy. The fascists carry out violence towards minorities. We need to stop them organizing. We need to obstruct them. But in the current moment, it becomes, it's harder, partly through technological like change, the fascists or far right or this, you know, conglomeration of different ideological, mess of different influences have a huge platform already. And I think that we should, you know, be mobilizing and campaigning to reduce that platform as much as possible. We should say to the, uh, the media organizations that give, like LBC, for example, that give Nigel Farage a platform, not as a political figure, but as a curator of the news. That must be the ultimate form of legitimacy for someone, to actually be in that kind of position um, of authority. We should say to the commercial organisations like PayPal and others that have been implicitly implicated in enabling the Tommy Robinson uh, movements by uh, channeling funds for the far right, turn off the taps, stop channeling, channeling these funds. So we have to do that, but we also have to combine it with um, you know, a political attack um, on these forces. The simple answer to your question, though, is just Euroscepticism is incredibly strong in Britain, and it's less strong in other countries. Um, it's less strong in Greece where the Greece Greek people never wanted to leave the Eurozone in opinion polls, let alone the European um, Union. And the fascists understand that, and that's why they're dangerous. 
Uh, Marine Le Pen, whether she's a Eurosceptic or not, in the proper sense, it depends what day of the week you ask her. I mean, she's the ultimate political opportunist. So there's, you know, they're, they're, they're dancing all over the place, but the dangerous thing is that they want to take over this um, beast. That's the conclusion they come to. And the second question that I think is a really important one raises this issue of how we define Europe. I think there's a really simple explanation for the refugee crisis that we never really hear, and that's a definition of Europe that excluded North African states. Uh, you might not realise, not many people do, but Morocco applied to join the European Union in 1986. It was told emphatically that it wasn't a European country. Now, isn't it possible, if you think about the long history of North Africa, to make some kind of argument that those states have belonged to a geographical and political entity called Europe? And if you can make that argument, then you have to ask yourself, and I'm terribly, boringly pro-European, um, but you have to ask yourself, well, isn't there a racial kind of racist logic that we're excluding those states? And so a really radical solution is to open up Europe to other states. And the European Union signs all of these partnership agreements and associations with what it calls the European uh, neighbourhood. So, you know, I'm not necessarily against it, it's all fine, but let's be clear, those partnership arrangements are not a relationship of equals because those states, many of them, are never uh, allowed to enter an accession process. And finally, you have seen with Turkey the implications of where that exclusionary notion of Europe gets you. Now, Erdogan is a terrible authoritarian. I think at the moment, absolutely, Turkey shouldn't be let into the European Union. But 10, 15 years ago, I think it's a very different um, situation. And that exclusionary notion of Europe, the European political leaders that said Turkey wasn't a Christian country, that it should never be allowed to join the European Union, that did feed the nationalist populism that we now see in Turkey. And therefore, the European elite do need to take some responsibility for what we see in that country today.